Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, where you are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, joined by the host with the most, CIS's Chief Evangelist and Hall of Famer, Tony Sager. Tony, how are you, sir? Great, thank you, Sean. It's great to be back on the on the air with you. Wonderful, thank you. We also have Carlos Kazee, Senior Vice President of MSISAC Strategy and Plans in our Operations and Security Services. Carlos, how are you, sir? Sean, I am great, and it's great to be here with you and Tony and some others of our friends. Fantastic. We also have uh, Bagov Yes, uh, Monroe Woodbury Central School District Assistant Superintendent for Compliance and Information Security, as well as the Data Protection Officer. Bagov, how are you, sir? I am fantastic, Sean. Glad to be here with my colleagues. Wonderful. And last but not least, Terry, Terry Loftus, Assistant Superintendent and Chief Information Officer for the San Diego County Office of Education. Terry, how are you, sir? I am well, Sean. Uh, thank you very much for having me and good afternoon to all of my esteemed colleagues. Wonderful, wonderful. Carlos, I wonder just if you could give us a quick minute, uh, your background and role with uh, CIS. Uh, great question. And uh, Sean, thanks for asking it. Um, I, I work as Senior Vice President for uh, our Strategy and Plans section for the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. The MSISAC is one of two ISACs that's overseen by the Center for Internet Security. It uh, allows us to provide services, support, and collaboration capabilities to state, local, tribal, and territorial entities. Uh, our current strength, membership strength, is above 16,000 members and of that number uh, over 4,600 are k-12 schools and districts so it's a very very timely topic uh, for us to chat uh, through today wonderful thank you carlos bagov how about yourself my role here is an assistant superintendent of technology serving the students and staff of Monroe Woodbury Central School District. It's about an hour north of New York City and, and ultimately supporting the educational technology tools in the last 23 years in the ed tech world. Are responsible for worried about the data privacy issues, supporting the educational technology, and obviously the, always the hot topic is cybersecurity and how do we safeguard the student and parents and staff data that our community is trusting us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and Terry? Yes. Uh, so I have the privilege and honor to uh, serve a, a, at the San Diego County Office of Education. Uh, we support the over 550,000 students and staff of San Diego County. Uh, we have 42 school districts, 129 charter schools, uh, and ser serve a, a, a broad array of students, teachers, and community members. Uh, and we also uh, do a lot of work at the state level, uh, specifically around cybersecurity. Uh, because the, as we all know, and what we're going to talk about here in a few moments is that the, the threats are ever evolving and unfortunately they're increasing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was exemplified, Carlos, in a K through 12 report that was put together, a, a number of contributors, a lot of research into this respective report. Could you just give us a brief overview of that report? 
So the K-12 report, this is our second year publishing report, again, for the broad community of K-12 schools and districts in our membership, and for those out there that aren't in our membership, but should be. Um, our report essentially gives us the opportunity to take data that we have access through from self-assessment activity that uh, schools will conduct, from uh, data from schools uh, that will contact our security operations center or our CERT for incident response support, or also data from uh, folks like, uh, you know, uh, Bargoff and Terry, uh, who are very, very insightful and provide great feedback, both of whom are, are members of our executive committee, essentially the board of directors for our MSISAC membership. All of that data, all of that input uh, is leveraged to provide quality products, services, and capabilities to the K-12 community. But we also wanted to publish data and insights from, uh, from, from what we found uh, to allow um, better decision-making and prioritization. So this report is our attempt to do that. Last year, the report was accessed by um, over 46 uh, states, I think 46 or 47 states across uh, uh, the country, territories as well. And we even saw uh, that um, over 19 countries, uh, organizations from 19 countries outside of the United States access this report. So the insights, the data, uh, and the knowledge uh, that we're generating and that we're provided by members like Bargoff and Terry uh, is not only benefiting K-12 schools here in the U.S., but around the world. Absolutely. And Bargov, what we saw in that report, you know, I, I, again, a lot of information, but really some uh, apparent elements in terms of security concern. And one of those security concerns happens to be funding. I think that's, you know, endemic everywhere. But have you seen changes in the K through 12 space in terms of getting more funding, more support to uh, really identify and remediate risk in terms of cybersecurity? Uh, or is this still going to be an issue into 2024 and beyond? I think the funding in the K-12 specifically related to cybersecurity is always challenging. However, in last three to five years, we have seen that um, funding increasing because of the awareness of the leadership team. Um, obviously, it, more cyber attacks are make more public now, so it certainly increases the anxiety of the leadership and community who are really aware about this. So that helps in terms of more funding. However, it's not to the point that, that we would like to do that. So basically, the advocacy for increased cybersecurity budgets and, and, and a potential long-term cost saving would be only because of the various government policies some government funding, creating some awareness, and then maybe uh, security awareness mitigation threat services like the MSISEC services that we've been at utilizing it. Absolutely. Thoughts there, Carlos, on those services themselves? Yeah, what, one of the dynamics that we see on the topic of funding and, and, and providing resources against funding is as the funds might increase because of awareness, like Fargap is saying, Threat activity is also increasing. Threat actors are becoming more uh, capable. They're leveraging uh, different tools and technologies, and, and uh, they're extremely collaborative. So for the MSISAC, it's important for us to make available product services and capabilities for our K-12 members that can help them. Uh, one I mentioned earlier, a self-assessment capability that gives uh, organizations an opportunity to evaluate where they are and to focus on what their highest priority concerns are that will make a, a big difference. Uh, we promote a great uh, set of controls, the CIS controls, 
uh, where we identify safeguards by implementation groups with implementation group one being the uh, highest value safeguards to adopt against threat activities that are targeting state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations. Many of the MSISAC services are made available to state, local, tribal, and territorial entities for free at no cost. We also have additional services based on the needs and requirements of our members developed against those needs and requirements, uh, some of which are available at minimal cost by virtue of our partnership uh, with others in industry and everybody wants to take care of the kids in K-12. Absolutely. Terry, it's, uh, you know, leading us to it's, uh, you know, those threats, the advanced threats and the targeting of K through 12. Is, is that what you're seeing as well, you know, in, in representation to both, you know, this funding issue, but the adversary is, you know, not going away, that, that this is the defender's dilemma in some cases? Yes, I, I think you're spot on, Sean. And that's, that's unfortunately our current reality is that, uh, you know, maybe eight, 10 years ago, when we looked at uh, data across sectors, uh, K-12 was, was near or at the bottom. Uh, it was more, uh, you know, focused on financial institution, energy sector, government, military, et cetera. And we've seen a rapid increase uh, to, to being either at the top of that list or near the top of that list, depending on uh, which vendor or which agency ha has done analysis. Uh, and that's definitely not an area K-12 wants to be number one in. Uh, we, we like to uh, serve our students and, and excel but uh, not in this particular category. But, but just briefly circling back to the funding piece, and I appreciate Bargov's comments because that's encouraging to me. Uh, speaking for California, and, and, and again, I would imagine it's, it's a mixed bag across the nation, right? I think we've got some uh, very different approaches and, and, and mindsets and, and awareness levels. But in California, we use something in, in education called the local control funding formula, which is excellent because it gives local uh, local districts and charter schools really voice and choice in how they're spending their their dollars on students. They get uh, parent feedback, staff in, input, feedback from students. Um, but really, it's been uh, we found that our technology leaders have really had to step up kind of their marketing skills or or advocating and and saying, hey, uh, maybe instead of the the funding for that new playground at the elementary school, that we need to think about uh, uh, some resources to better protect the students. Uh, data and staff data uh, and, and, and related cybersecurity issues. So I think it's um, we're going in the right direction as far as funding. But right now, at least in California, we do not have any dedicated funding specific to uh, cybersecurity initiatives. And, and one more element, and this isn't to be, you know, glass half empty. I'm usually a pretty positive individual, but uh, things like the we were excited about the state and local cybersecurity grant program uh, at the federal level. Uh, but at least in our state, we have seen that the state has decided to use those uh, more on municipalities and jurisdictions, uh, cities and counties. Uh, and again, they are in great need as well. We're, we, we see the threat landscape and how they are impacted. So it's not like it's the, the dollars aren't going to a, 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 to a good uh, for a good cause, but it's really a situation where K-12, again, has kind of been, hasn't been top of mind for a lot of folks. And so uh, those dollars really haven't, haven't flowed to us in K-12. So with that, that's why uh, we do uh, so uh, uh, greatly appreciate resources from MSISAC, uh, CIS, uh, CISA, uh, and then our state uh, and federal partners, including, you know, the FBI, U.S. Department of Education, and so forth. So uh, yes, those, that, that's an area where we've got uh, an opportunity to improve his funding. I would add to what Terry said, uh, K-12, um, 
it, it, it makes a lot of sense for funds to go to where there are cyber underserved organizations and entities, you know, not a lot of funds, not a lot of resources, that type of thing. Um, and, and municipal governments are under resourced K-12 as well as under resourced. But when you think about the threat actor, the cyber threat actor perspective, the cyber threat actor is going to go where the defenses are least and the reward is greatest. And there's a lot of data uh, within the K-12 environment, not just uh, uh, school fiscal data, there's parent data, you know, privacy data, student privacy data, financial information, and so on. So the K-12 environment is target rich for the cyber threat actor community. Absolutely. It, one of the piece that I would add as well, like E-Rate. E-Rate is a federally funded uh, program that most of the school district apply and receive it. Um, there is a big push in last about 18 to 24 months from all the local and state organizations um, across the board to, to use the E-Rate funding for certain cybersecurity solutions. Um, most of the districts are now connected, but we need some help in terms of protecting what we have connected in the last 20 years. Um, and and that change would be very welcoming whenever that change would come down for K-12 to, to use that funding to more use the security and cybersecurity in terms of securing our connections. What do you think, Terry? Yeah, uh, that's well said by Bargov. And, and I do appreciate the chairwoman, uh, Rosa Morsel, uh, really put forward this summer a $200 million pilot. Uh, and uh, I, I, from what I hear, that uh, vote is coming soon, uh, now that they've seated all members of the commission. And so uh, very excited to get underway with that three-year pilot, because I think that truly uh, will inform where we go with E-Rate, because uh, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, support for adding to E-Rate, but we also have folks that are very mindful of the, the direct benefit that E-Rate does provide. There are schools and libraries, which is uh, really helping with that equity issue around connectivity. And so we don't want that to be cannibalized. And so I think that this is a really smart approach by the FCC to look at doing a pilot first and then taking a more surgical approach to, all right, how do we modify uh, E-rate to, to, to make some improvements and include some elements uh, around cybersecurity funding that we just simply don't have currently. And real quick, back to Carlos's point, I, I think it's, it's again, uh, uh, an awareness issue that, that we need to continue to work on in K-12 around the data that we are entrusted with by our communities. When I talked to folks, again, there was a big incident in LAUSD a couple of years ago. I was called by a reporter and they said, well, what's the, what's the concern anyways? What's uh, if they get student grades, right? And so the conversation I had with that individual was, all right, well, let's take a step back and look at uh, K-12 education. Really, we are a mashup of many sectors. Not only are we, is there teaching and learning and instruction happening, but we're a transportation organization. We're a healthcare organization. We have schools with counselors, uh, nurses, LDNs. We have sensitive financial data, uh, we, and the list goes on and on. Uh, you know, we're a nutrition services or food services uh, provider. So if you think about all the challenges faced by each of these individual sectors and take K-12 and let's put them all together and uh, not provide the resources to protect all of it, it makes for kind of a perfect storm and, and why I think we have unfortunately jumped to the top of that list as far as targets. Because as Carlos said, uh, if you're looking to for financial gain, and there's other motivations obviously with attacks, but if you're particularly looking at uh, through the lens of financial gain, uh, there's no better target than K-12, unfortunately. Yeah, it's been the, the history of this, right? That you, know, you have to get the balance between raising awareness, but uh, awareness is nice, but now what are, what are you going to do? Well, there needs to be a plan and the ability to integrate that in with, for example, you know, uh, 
programs to increase connectivity or improve IT operations as a general matter, you know, we're much better off doing that up front. And so the ability to, 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 to be in the right spot and to, you know, raise, we, we used to think if we could just make everybody aware, well, then the problem would get solved, right? Well, we'll do, make the right decisions, but no one knows what those right decisions are unless you get down to the trenches and then you get a chance to, to see all that. But just a, a little shift of gear here. So we've talked about sort of the, the money part of it. What about the, the, the people part of it? You know, the ability to get skilled people with, with security backgrounds, right? You're competing in a really tough marketplace here. And I think one of the statistics that came out of the report was the relatively no, low number of uh, employees who have security responsibilities as part of, part of their day. Does that reflect the broader competitive marketplace, or is that just a lack of awareness or funding? Or where does that come from? Uh, Barkov, maybe you I'll give you a chance to. Think. So the shortage of cybersecurity talents—that's a global issue, and and we our our main focus is supporting and educating students uh, through the right talent of staff. We're not in a marketplace of competing for a cybersecurity talent. Yes, we would like to compete, uh, but that's just not possible. And and what's happening throughout the many years is, is just that the threats are being increased again and higher and higher and higher. So the traditional IT skills is not adequate nowadays to to mitigate those risks. But what has what what we have done in the last three to five years is is looking at some options like partnership with the external um, or internal expertise, the local cybersecurity expect uh, experts training existing staff. Um, let's work with what we have and and can we do some homegrown um, work with the, some of the students, start them early in maybe high school computer science or cybersecurity courses, and, and they would go to local college and then work come, come back and work with us. We have a couple of success stories of that as well. But ultimately, um, work with the local and, and state organization, uh, including some higher educational institution to, to, work, to basically have them bigger talent pool that we can attract them at a reasonable cost to our taxpayers. Yeah, great, very creative, and uh, I think necessary. Right, you're gonna you're again the knowing the the kind of funding issues also leads to the inability to compete in that marketplace. Terry, any any thoughts from your perspective on that manpower issue? No, I would just echo Bargov's comments. He's spot on. I think it's incumbent upon us, uh, particularly in K twelve. I think if there's a, a an area that could have the most positive long term impact, it's us. Uh, because uh, he's absolutely right. There's a, a shortage uh, for us, a shortage for everyone, quite frankly. I mean, in just a thing, uh, you know, some presentations from Microsoft at their annual Ignite conference last week, they posted the graphic of 3.5 million cybersecurity jobs that are unfilled globally. Uh, and yes, that's globally, but many of those are here in the United States. And, uh, and so there's a lot of competition for those roles. We don't pay the same levels. Uh, we just simply can't compete like many of our government friends uh, with the private sector. And so it's very, very challenging. I mean, Carlos, you, this reflects the the entire uh, constituency of, of the ISACs, right? The state and local governments also struggle with the same similar problem of being able to afford the kind of talent that the market has. Tony, that's absolutely right. One, one thing I do appreciate is when we pull uh, groups of our members together, whether it's K-12 or, or a grab bag mix of, of other members, Topics like this come central, right? Uh, they're, they're talking not just about what tools they need and how they have those tools tuned, but they're talking about how they're overcoming barriers and, and impediments to building out security programs. And they're learning from each other. They're, they're learning how, how to work in uh, you know, a fiscally constrained environment. What are some best practices in communicating with decision makers and, and that type of thing? So I, I think the collective uh, engagement, the activity of member on member, peer on peer is really important. 
Oh, absolutely. And oh, go ahead, Terry, please. No, I just wanted to briefly add. So, you know, the the, the, the report itself has gained, uh, provided some really, really good insights. And one of them, of course, uh, the, is the, the 90 percent of school districts uh, stating that they have uh, less than five employees with security related duties. And I had some so after the report came out, some uh, chatting with some folks, at least here on the West Coast. Uh, you know, that is an alarming number unto itself, just full stop, right? Uh, but the other element is, uh, I would guess that the number is probably closer to 99% that don't have a dedicated security staff member. So when you say security related duties, what we've had to do, I'm sure Bargov and others, and even our friends in, you know, cities, counties, say, states, et cetera, et cetera, are, 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 are really in a situation where you've had to weave cyber duties into existing job roles. So that network administrator, we can't hire a CISO, we can't hire, you know, a, a, a cybersecurity analyst or architect, a pen tester, you know, any of these roles are usually off the table for us entirely. It's how do we infuse these tasks into the existing roles that we have. So, um, so yes, the 90%, because we've, we, I think uh, as a, at least in K-12, we've done a pretty good job in recent years embedding some of those in. So we could say, yes, we've got five employees that have security related duties, but that might be a line item in a job description, right? As part of a broader skill set and, and, and a set of roles and responsibilities. So again, not to be doom and gloom, but uh, I, I think the staffing piece that you bring up, Sean, is one of the things that's probably our most acute problem uh, that, that, that we're dealing with and will continue to deal with uh, in K-12. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll, we'll reflect the doom and gloom to some strengths that we saw in the report, uh, Terry. You know, we saw there has been uh, maturation in identity and access management, in security awareness and training, and even maintenance of underlying systems. Do, what do you attribute to the uh, maturation over the, you know, the report's life cycle and, and the fact that there is strengths in these specific areas? Yeah, I, I think maybe as the adage goes, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Uh, it's just people of, we've kind of been painted into a corner uh, and, and need to take some actions. And I, uh, for one, again, this isn't uh, to, to, to toot the horn specifically for, for MSI, SAC, or CIS, but we have really found a great deal of success here in California uh, with the CIS controls. And we saw that in the, the, the reporting, uh, the, the, the data from uh, the survey itself. And I, I think for many of us, whether you're a large uh, educational agency, uh, mid-sized or very, very small, uh, you need a plan. You need a roadmap. You need a framework. You need something that, that can uh, uh, that you can wrap your mind around. Right. And, and there, to be clear, there's other frameworks and NIST and so forth. But in my humble opinion, the CIS controls are the best fit for K-12, uh, especially when you're looking at, you know, uh, three different implementation groups. It gives you somewhere to start. And so I think again, maybe five or six years ago, a lot of folks didn't even know where to start. They're just in full firefighter mode, right? And uh, very little being done proactively, analytically, strategically. Uh, it was keep your head above water uh, situation. And so uh, though the attacks and threats have increased, I, I think our knowledge, our awareness, and the use of uh, helpful frameworks like the CIS controls gets us at least started on a path. And so you can set a baseline and, and start working on that cybersecurity maturity for your organization. Terry, I remember we did a survey with an industry friend a few years ago about what security framework do you use? And it was very enlightening and startling, the percentage that said no framework. And I said, wow, you have a framework, whether you know it or not. Now, it may be random, but at the end of the day, framework is not magic, right? It's a way to take in information, make decisions, develop a plan, execute, you know, rinse and right, repeat. Right. And um, 
but you know, and, and thanks for the plug for the CIS controls. I mean, the goal is exactly what you know what you reflected about it is. Uh, we're all grappling with this problem. None of, very few of us have an army of threat analysts or people who can follow all this stuff. And at the end of the day, most of it's in common. So the need to have a plan, right? That it's kind of a social expectation or a baseline or wait, what's the roadmap? I just want to get going. Tell me, that's what started the whole control site. How do I just get started? Give me one sensible set of things to do and I'll go from there. You're right, Tony. And and the other element that we found is kind of some knock-on effects. Just real briefly, I mean, in addition to having a, a, a pathway or a roadmap uh, that's helpful, it's also helped us to have common language, right? So when we're working on something, we can refer to a specific control or to a safeguard. Uh, and even extending that, we've had uh, a lot of conversations as we try to wherever possible, and Bargov probably does this as well, to, to purchase as a consortium, right? To leverage uh, broader purchasing groups and state-level contracts and so forth. And so when we can say, hey, we're, uh, we're looking to address this particular control, everyone who might have a need in that area can then very easily jump on board uh, and see what options are available, what's being used by their peers and have conversations about, you know, reach out, hey, did this work for you? Let's cut through all the marketing fluff. Uh, did this really help you uh, advance your practice or your, your, your uh, security posture? I think one of the best advantage in the last couple of years, I see that uh, many states uh, or local organization or government organization have defined the framework. Majority of the K-12 follow this cybersecurity framework. Before the couple of years, it was wild open. So now the conversations are much more pointed, much more direct. And to Terry's point, we are all leveraging the bargaining power of to say, hey, we are looking for a solution that is NIST compliant, but not just for one district, but 50 school districts together. So that helps definitely increase the maturity of the, the process. The other piece that I would recommend, I, I would mention is also leadership commitment. Um, variety of whether it's a good news, bad news, the leadership commitment has certainly increased a little bit. A lot of superintendents that I see, including my, my own one, she is aware about what is the cybersecurity expertise and what is the cybersecurity commitment looks like. So I think that certainly helped us when we go on having a conversation at, at, the, at the leadership table. We are not reinventing that conversation the folks in the in the in the power position have already heard and started committing more resources and again it's a continuous improvement when when the team gets in the corner the only way out is being you know innovative and figure it out how to get this done um, with the cybersecurity framework absolutely i mean it leads us into you know really other areas as well because we see improvement and obviously the operationalized approach of the controls allows you to not only define a path but also walk that path and that's the most important piece of it but bag of it also leads us where we see that there are issues and and this is not uncommon in k through 12 but data protection is always a concern and one of the uh, and unfortunately and you know we see it in k through 12 even through the report itself where we start to see elements of um, you know, data protection being weak in some respects and needing attention. So we apply control number three and the data protection elements. Uh, and given you know, your role as data protection officer, my I have the same is, you know, I think we could do a whole series of sessions on what this would need to require us to move forward and mature in this space. 
But what have you seen in some of the areas where there has been improvement or there is an opportunity that just requires either a focus, a dedication or utilizing, you know, a control capability to um, really mitigate that risk? I think the, the, the opportunities that we have seen that are working or improving in last three years is certainly the, the end user education program. I would say most, almost all of our teachers, um, every single person go through through specific training. And that educates the end user, what is the data means to us as a stakeholder? How do we protect the data? What can we do better in terms of worried about when we collect the data? So that has significantly improved the awareness, but also what we are learning at the same time. This also helps our teachers and staff and, and students in their own personal life too. So this is not just a school providing from eight to two school time. Having this education available to to all the stakeholders, helping them being better citizen in their personal life as well. Um, this is our second year that we we brought our students into part of this training program. And, and first year was interesting, but now we see the value of that, that as well. I would say generally most of your K-12 organization have done a lot of good work in the last four or five years uh, training the adults. Now it's the time to bring the students as a part of the solution as well, because that's obviously a much more larger number. Um, and, and email is an email, whether it's a student or staff, it doesn't matter. It's all equally vulnerable. So why not educating them? The other piece in terms of data protection is, is obviously the cost. Um, and, and that's where the consortium purchasing can come really handy. Um, how do we leverage and, and basically educate our local consortiums uh, along with the state organization to say, hey, we need the help and we need help not just in buying it, but effectively implementing the various solutions we have. Exactly. Exactly. There is no set it and forget it because there's an ability to assess and review. And I also go back, Bhagav, back to a point that you made in terms of these are life skills that we need to get for the students. Because, you know, I heard, you know, back in, you know, let's say five years ago, it was, well, students need to be able to program to have the right vernacular for the world we're moving into. But I feel even more that a cybersecurity education at the base level is that's going to affect their daily lives based on the digitization of everything that we are and what we do. And I just feel that's a crucial element that we've got to, you know, bring to the table. And, and you eloquently put it more than I did, but it allows us then to have better, more succinct conversations because the underlying technology, no matter who you are, is the same, same vulnerability, but it's the, the utilization and the, the ability to understand what is privacy and how to protect that in an age where it's, uh, it's better to, you know, give every access to everybody to everything. And it's to, you know, reflect on those elements as well. And, and that's one of the biggest uh, elements in data protection I see, Bhargav, that uh, we've got to fix. Absolutely, Sean. You're absolutely right. The interesting connecting the dot process that we just started looking is when the students are educated in terms of what is the privacy means more to them, it's also connected to their social emotional wellness. And I know as a cybersecurity folks, we generally don't talk about it, but it's very evident from where we are seeing this data is digital literacy, uh, life skills, and also social emotional wellness. So even though it's a cybersecurity conversation, I equally value the the, the mental health uh, from our students and staff as well, because it's all connected at the end of the day. Absolutely. What do you think, Carlos? I, I, I'm impressed with uh, hearing Bargoff, and I know we've had some con some conversations Bargoff offline as well. 
one of the things that, that uh, interested me greatly in, in uh, this line of discussion with Bardock was the challenge in the educational environment. Uh, this is, I believe, much harder than in other environments where, where I've worked previously. You could pull the workforce together and you could provide security and awareness training and, and so on. But in this environment, you have students that, and you're competing with curriculum uh, challenges, and then you have teachers and you're maybe competing uh, with union protocols and demands, you know, in, in terms of what you put in place and, and how you provide training. So um, I believe there's a lot to be learned in how uh, these organizations are carrying out what might be easier to do in another context. Absolutely. Any thoughts there, Terry? No, I would just completely agree again with uh, my colleagues. It, it, it's a much wider issue uh, when we're thinking about cybersecurity and, and the impact. And, and really, uh, again, that is, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of a selling point of the training, uh, whether it be for students or for staff, is that these are indeed life skills. And in fact, uh, we are seeing, at least here locally, uh, many times the, the incidents that are happening start at home. So a compromised staff member's device on their home network that then uh, is leveraged to access their, their work credentials or work resources such as email and, and other platforms. So uh, the awareness piece, uh, it was encouraging to see in the report that that's really uh, improved quite a bit. And we just need to keep our foot on the gas because, the you know, as they say with SANS, the securing the human is always going to be an important element. And, and it's very much a, a, a layered approach, as we all know. There is no one... Uh, thing we can do or action or item we can buy or service we could subscribe to that will solve this for us. And really the biggest impact is uh, is helping all of our end users to have a better understanding. Absolutely. Tony, you know, it, it reflects funnily on conversations that we've had in this space. It, it seems like the 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 issues are pervasive right it's uh and again given the number of industries because you know you really don't think of it when you think k through 12 you just think in education but the industrial verticals that are aligned it's just amazing to think of the concepts here but it's also one of the things for data protection and uh, then we'll you know there's another question i want to uh move on to but it's you know that that data is for life right and, and when we see the pii and the educational information being lost in the space, it's not just an instance in time, but it permeates. And it's so important to protect and the level of responsibility when we see, you know, funding issues, but also talent acquisition. It's such an important space. And, you know, really, it then leads to uh, it may not necessarily be able to compete in the monetary, but the experiential element of working through K through 12 is going to give you a vast array of experience in this space to better and further understand many, many different industrial verticals. So it's, you know, it becomes even a selling point to say that there's such a, an, uh, a vast array of challenges that we really want to help focus and allow those coming in to be able to understand, manage, control, and be a part of. What do you think, Terry? Yeah, just one uh, other element to piggyback on that is uh, in K-12, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully not revealing too much here, but we, we don't do a, a great job as far as uh, data minimization is not in our vocabulary. Uh, it, it's about consuming as much data as possible with, with good intentions and wanting to inform instruction of students and, uh, you know, uh, looking for positive outcomes for students and growth. 
But at the end of the day, uh, all of that data that we were chatting about a bit earlier, and you just touched on, Sean, is, is are things that we generally keep forever. So there are guidelines and state uh, legislation around certain elements and contracts that we need to take on uh, and keep for certain amounts of time. But those are very, at least uh, on the West Coast here, it's very complex and very convoluted. So many throw up their hands and just say, well, we don't want to fail an audit, so let's just keep it. And so we have things literally forever. And so, as we all know, the more data that we uh, that, that, that we harvest and that we pull together and that we're building, uh, the more we're going to have to defend. And so, um, uh, I think other industries might have a little bit of an advantage where they have clearer retention policies and have uh, a little bit more flexibility. Um, I mean, uh, the vast majority of the districts I know uh, have a keep forever policy on their email, for example. And so uh, just think about the vast amount of data uh, when you think about, I mean, again, here in California, we've got about 800,000 K-12 staff, teachers, custodians, principals, et cetera. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it truly is massive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, think of the storage costs. Let's take that storage, get better retention and put the f- savings back into cybersecurity. Again, just throwing it out there for the group. <laughs> Over to you, Tony. No, Sean. That's uh, I, you know you made a comment earlier that uh, you. I, I often tell people in, in my talk, Sean, uh, if you want to see capitalism in action, don't study the good guys; study the bad guys. You know, because there's a certain kind of Darwinian efficiency, right? And you see the the specialization, right? The money mules, the tool builders, the reconnaissance company. You, you don't build the botnets; you rent space on them, and you know, because it's united by the economics, the criminal underground has a sort of a natural alignment principle, right? That 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 brings that. And then you look at the struggles of the the good guys, and you think it feels like you know every school's on their own, every small business is trying to defend themselves, and it's just unsustainable. It makes no sense. That's why some of the things that like Bargov and Terry brought up, right? The collective buying you know, trying to do things at a district or at, a, at an aggregate level, make use of, of, uh, of centralized common services as provided by the ISAC, right? The, the, these are sensible, cost-effective ways. You know, none of us is a, a special snowflake or entirely different. We're all struggling with the same kind of technology issues. And so, you know, it's another value of the survey, right? It is, you know, folks like Carlos, I spend a lot of time, I know, going over the results, trying to figure out how, how do we direct our program of activity at the most important problems, you know, as seen by the people that are directly affected by it. And I think that is a, a big, big um, value here, this sort of collective understanding, collective behavior, collective action is really the, the key to this. And again, we, we watch the bad guys do it all the time. So maybe it's time for us to, you know, to take a big, bigger step. And one of the things that I will say, uh, Sean, just to shift gears a little bit, that really galvanized attention over the last small number of years is ransomware. You know, it went from a relatively small part of the the attack economy to the really driver for a lot of folks. And it was an eye-opener also for bad guys. It really opened up the aperture, right? I, I don't need to hit a gigantic financial firm for lots of money. I can hit lots of people for small amounts of money. And for, for our educational uh, industry folks here, is that still kind of a galvanizing principle or a is that is that the attention getter in terms of raising awareness among executives, for example, or what what are people paying attention to that that really resonates with them? I think absolutely, it's still the 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 most critical piece. And as soon as we hear that word ransomware, the 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 increases the awareness and heighten the alert, emergency. Um, however, um, it's it's education itself is like a, a, 
an, an interesting cross section of, of like at least 10 to 12 different industries. So it's not just, yes, our primary goal is to support and educating our students uh, with the best talent in terms of teachers we can attract and then provide that the best instruction and time uh, to provide education to our students. Absolutely, that is our key goal. However, because of the variety of data we gather, it's always being a target. Um, and, and ransomware being a ransomware as a service nowadays, uh, it's just the disruption in, in K-12 when it happens, it's massive. It basically, entire community feel that disruption. Uh, if the ransomware happens in a specific company, it's only the company and their small number of consumer feel the, the impact. In terms of school district, when the ransomware is affecting it's not just the schools and teachers and students, it impacts the entire community around us. So it's still really, really close to all of us. We pay significantly attention. Uh, but I think I think the strategies have changed a little bit better in last two, three years. Obviously the support of CISA, MSI, SAC, Department of Homeless Security has some, uh, some really good tools. So it's becoming a little bit more in terms of common to have some kind of the solution in place now, which was not really common four or five years before like regular backups, regular uh, tabletop exercise, staff training, uh, the robust cybersecurity plan in terms of what will happen when this happens. It's, it's very similar to like a fire, fire drill. Let's get in terms of a very regular habit of doing these fire drills like we, we generally for the cyber drills in terms of it's going to happen, the disruption. We are hoping that we would minimize that disruption by mitigating or putting certain checkpoints so that it would not impact our entire community. Your point about the community, uh, my daughter-in-law is a, is a teacher in the local county school system here. And uh, if you, in the news a couple of years back was a Baltimore County and wow, what a disruption all of a sudden. I mean, like you said, the entire community is paralyzed. You know the ability to inability to operate a school, the disruption of uh, the transportation, and all the things that that work around the school. So absolutely, Terry, uh, any, any thoughts on that topic? Yeah, Tony, that's well said. And you know, friends out in Baltimore, uh, it's been an incredibly expensive endeavor for them for the recovery. And there was an article, I believe I saw maybe even a year ago, that uh, many many months, actually years after the event. Uh, they found they realized that data had been manipulated around uh, uh, staff data uh, regarding retirement. And so they were still cleaning up data. They were still rectifying that people essentially were not paid correctly. Uh, and so think about the impact on morale. Think about uh, the impact on individuals when your paycheck, even if it's slightly off, uh, because someone uh, messed with calculations in your ERP system. So uh, these things have very long tails. And I think that's something... Uh, another awareness piece that that is uh, starting to at least get out there because people don't they think uh, you know let's pay a ransom and tomorrow we'll be fine uh and and that's not not always the case in fact it's the not uh it's rarely the case so yeah that that that's particularly challenging the other other element too is um and i've seen uh again many of these incidents unfortunately recently many uh, in our state just in the last six months um, you know, it, it, they're complex. So the first district that I helped through the process, uh, and, and again, it may be different in other states with their particular, uh, their specific legislation, but for us, it's not, uh, uh, not breaking any laws or, or ed code to, to pay a ransom, uh, but helping districts understand that we need to work with our federal partners, the DOJ, because, uh, you know, not to overly simplify or be silly, but, uh, there's bad guys and then there's bad, bad guys. The bad, bad guys are, 
might be on a federal terror list and in which case you are prohibited. And so you have to work with DOJ to essentially assert or, or to the best of your ability, make sure that you're not making a payment to one of these organizations that's prohibited federally before your county, in our case, our county treasury uh, can issue a payment of some sort. So uh, even the process of paying a, a, a ransom these days is very uh, nuanced for, for districts to navigate and to do properly. Um, and then the other piece to, that, that I think just as the adds the insult to injury piece is we're seeing firms that are uh, uh, maybe not the most ethical that are reaching out to parents en masse directly when they hear of incidents, whether it's ransomware or breaches or otherwise. And we have in our county two class action lawsuits against school districts that have started uh, that are currently underway. And so these are events that have happened in the last couple of years. And um, again, that it's a kind of a secondary harm. So not only are they the victim the first time around, it's a second time around that they are now uh, being challenged. And, and, and uh, to be clear, I'm supportive of parents and other community groups saying, you know what? Uh, if you're not doing the right thing to, 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 to support uh, data privacy and security, um, you know, action needs to be taken. There, there absolutely should be accountability for K-12 and for government institutions in general. But um, it really is hard to, 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 to go through a painful incident and then uh, to essentially have it uh, uh, reopen, if you will, that wound of uh, sometime later with a class action lawsuit. It's like the uh, digital equivalent of uh, ambulance chasing here. You know, it's just... Incredible. But yeah, and your point about the nexus between, say, uh, crime and national security is a really important one, right? It's not, you know, that that's one of the, the the joys and the dangers of this world we're in. We are all connected, and not at one level, but at many levels. And so this nexus of, you know, I mean, the the heartbreak of knowing, you know, money taken out of a local underfunded school system that helps funded fund really really bad guys. But that's that's the life that we're in right now. Absolutely. I, I We've got a lot to talk about, but as we look to conclude the meeting, there's a question I wanted to pose to, to our guests in terms of, you know, the report had five recommendations for K through 12 organizations. Some seem simple. Again, that has to be contextualized for the underlying organization. But uh, in conclusion, Bagov, how should a K through 12 organization get started in this space? I would say that if you cannot remember specific any of the conversation, make sure you sign up for MSI SAC. Um, to me, that's really important, but also not just sign up, start leveraging the free resources that that you are given. MSI SAC with a partner with CISAR Department of Homeland Security doing a tremendous job, but also take some basic uh, steps, simply providing the, the training to the staff. Um, Yes, it's cost money, but it's not that much. Working with the students, if possible. Collaborate with your external partners, government agencies that you may have local or federal government agency. Develop those relationships. Um, there are tons of resources around just in matter of identifying those resources and, and then start integrating those resources. So if something really bad happened, you're not reinventing the wheel on that day. You have some kind of the plan in place. And, and don't worry too much in terms of of having the perfect plan. Start with the step one to two to three to four. Don't look at the, oh my God, I need to get to step 10 tomorrow. That's just not how it's going to work. Just step by step and trust your leadership and the team around you. We're all in together and develop that relationship internally as well as external stakeholders that will pull you out if you're going to be in this situation. Wonderful, thank you. Terry, your final thoughts. 
Uh, I'm tempted to say ditto because I think uh, Bargov said it eloquently. Uh, the, the only additional pieces I think I would add is, uh, again, adopt a framework, CIS controls, NIST, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm partial to the CIS controls, but uh, take something uh, as a roadmap, as, as a strategy. Uh, that framework will really, really help you. The other piece, too, and I know this is a, a, a heavier lift than uh, some uh, LEAs, some local education agencies are, are, are able to do, but uh, you need to do some sort of vulnerability assessment. Uh, and, and it should be a recurring event, but the vast majority of the thousand districts in California have never had even one formal assessment. You need a baseline and, and, and it will be likely very ugly and that's okay. It's, but it's, uh, as they say, what is it? You can't uh, manage where you can't measure or can't see um, that very much uh, the same scenario here. And how are you going to communicate to your senior leadership, to your board, to your community, as far as what your needs are without getting an understanding first, take some of the guesswork out and, and start the work somewhere. So uh, I, I'm a big advocate of thinking about how you might partner uh, MSISAC for uh, a relatively low fee uh, and CIS provide uh, some of those types of services. There's plenty of third-party vendors. You might already have relationships with vendors that could provide that for you. Uh, and there may be some state or federal resources that, that might be able to do that as well. We're seeing CISA step up and they made a commitment in August to do an additional 300 assessments, which uh, super happy about and, and, and appreciate and want to celebrate. Uh, but we have nearly 14,000 school districts across the United States. And so uh, we know that we need to, to stoke flames like that and, and, and have that grow, but it's nowhere near where uh, we need to be just yet. And so uh, a lot of folks are going to need to look at taking that on locally. Wonderful. Carlos, your final thoughts, please. All right. I will go ahead and say ditto. Like, uh, <laughs> But most very, very, very important, joining the MSISAC gives individual organizations an opportunity to network with their peers and to learn from peer best practices, not just how did you do this, but how did you get justify the funds to do this? How did you align and marshal resources to do this? So joining the MSISAC uh, is like joining a, a, a club. Uh, of subject matter experts. There are some you can help and there are others that can help you. I, I think the, the, the next most important thing, I really agree with Terry, it, it, it is essential, I think, to have some type of an assessment. The Nationwide Cybersecurity Review has been in place for 11 years and there are organizations that are able to chart their progress year over year in the NCSR and to take that data and to align it to whatever framework uh, that they choose. The NCSR can be daunting uh, for some organizations, especially when you are not a security professional as your primary duty. So we've identified uh, a foundational assessment, which is a subset of the NCSR. It's a, a shorter question set, uh, and we align that foundational assessment with uh, a maturity review, a one-on-one -on -one opportunity to talk with you about uh, the data that your assessment identified and what you should do next. So taking advantage of membership in the MSISAC uh, and uh, a, an assessment mechanism that allows you to start that journey and, of course, ensuring that you have some framework that you're aligning to, like the CIS controls, NIST CSF, I think those are fundamental. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we'll draw to a conclusion. I just want to thank our guests for all the work that you do, the advocacy, the volunteerism. It's helping. We can see that in the report. Continue all the great work. Thank you so much. And to Tony, as always, sir, uh, an absolute pleasure. And to our audience, make sure to sign up in all the usual ways. Thank you for listening. And with that, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show today. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.